Hello, health investor. Welcome back to another episode of the Health Investment Podcast, episode number 50 to be exact. I honestly can't believe I've reached this milestone, and I'm so honored to have such an esteemed guest here with me for number 50. Today, you're going to hear from Marion Nessel. Marion is Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University. She earned a PhD in Molecular Biology and an MPH in Public Health Nutrition from the University of California, Berkeley. From 1986 to 1988, she was Senior Nutrition Policy Advisor in the Department of Health and Human Services and editor of the 1988 Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health. Her research and writing examine scientific and socioeconomic influences on food choice and its consequences, emphasizing the role of food industry marketing. Marion has authored numerous prize-winning books, and from 2008 to 2013, she wrote a monthly Food Matters column for the San Francisco Chronicle food section. She blogs almost daily at www.foodpolitics.com, and her Twitter account, at Marian Nessel, has been named among the top 10 in health and science by Time Magazine, Science Magazine, and The Guardian. In the episode, Marion shares how researchers' conflicts of interest cloud nutrition research, which research we can trust, whether or not superfoods have any merit, and more. I honestly could have chatted with Marion for several more hours because I was learning so much. I know you're going to love this episode. But first, I want to share an Apple Podcast review with you. Flusa01 rated the Health Investment Podcast five stars and wrote, Awesome guests, actionable insights for wellness. Ever want someone to do all the research on sustainable wellness topics that you're interested in and then package it into an easily digestible format? This is that podcast. Brooke selects thought-provoking experts to interview across a variety of health and wellness fields to get the juicy details on their insights for a long-term healthier life. I've learned so much from this podcast due to the awesome guests and the way Brooke asks questions that get to the root of the topics, regarding not just what the subject matter is, but how to incorporate it into your own life with small changes. I can't wait for more episodes. Well, I can't thank you enough for your kind words, Flusa01. One of the reasons the Health Investment Podcast has been able to grow and thrive to 50 episodes is because of the ongoing support of listeners like you and reviews. I truly can't thank you enough for tuning in each week and for spreading the word. If you haven't already, I'd be super grateful if you could take five minutes to leave your own review. You can easily do so by visiting thehealthinvestment.com slash review. Thank you. Thank you in advance. All right. It's time to hear from Marian Nessel. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Brooke Simonson, certified nutrition coach and host of the Health Investment Podcast. Here's the thing, you deserve to feel amazing. But here's the other thing, there are so many confusing messages out there. Week after week, I'm gonna share tips and practices that actually work for simple weight loss and sustainable wellness, because I wanna help you get healthy for good without any BS. When I'm not podcasting, I work with clients one-on-one, So visit the show notes to book your free consultation. And don't forget to leave a review so that others can become trim, energized, confident, BS-busting rock stars like you. Thanks for tuning in. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Marian. Thank you so, so much for joining me today on the Health Investment Podcast. I have been just such a fan of your work and reading your work online and looking into all of the amazing books you've written And I can't wait for you to share all of your wisdom with my audience today. Well, great. I'm really glad to be here. 
I'd love if you could start by just in your own words, sharing your story and your background, and then specifically what led you to your interest in tackling the politics of food, nutrition, and health. Sure. Um, I'm currently uh, the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health Emerita at New York University. I'm officially retired, although I'm still teaching at NYU, and I'm teaching a course for freshmen this fall on uh, food politics and the coronavirus. I'm really looking forward to it. I have It's an online course, and I have students all over the world. Um, I started out as a molecular biologist. That's what my doctorate is in. But I was given a nutrition course um, to teach on my first teaching job. And it was like falling in love. I just adored it because I could talk about science. I could talk about politics. I could talk about culture. And I could talk about what people were eating, which everybody loves to talk about. (laughs) And it's a great way to teach undergraduate biology. I just can't think of a better way to teach students about biological concepts than through how food is handled by the body. Um, And, uh, you know, I've always been interested in kind of the cultural influences on what people eat. But the, the, the real turning point for me was in the 1990s when I started going to uh, meetings about childhood obesity. And the, uh, at these meetings, everybody would be talking about what on earth are we going to do to get moms to feed their kids better? Yeah. How are we going to teach moms what to feed their kids? And I've been a mom. I, I was really resentful. Um, and I thought, really? You're talking about how to teach mothers to feed their children and you're not saying one word? about how the food industry is marketing junk food to your kids. Mm. It just never came up in any of these meetings. And I left that meeting thinking, somebody's got to start talking about food industry marketing to children. Mm. And so I started paying attention to that and writing articles about it. And eventually those articles I I put together into uh, my book, Food Politics, How the Food Industry Influences um, Food nutrition and health. Uh, And that book came out in 2002 and has gone through a couple of subsequent editions. Wow. So yeah, let's dive right into that. Uh, What are the conflicts of interest? Or maybe you could define that first when it comes to nutrition research, but what is the big issue you see, the biggest problem? Well, conflicts of interest refers to um, being paid to do something. um, And working to do something else and these are in conflict and the the example that you're talking about is what I talked about in my previous book unsavory truth how food companies skew the science of what we eat um, which is a book about food industry funding of nutrition research and the researchers who take food industry funding are supposed to be independent researchers but the funding influences their, uh, the way that they design, conduct, and interpret their experiments in ways that they're not even conscious of. Hmm. Um, so if you are a health researcher and you're doing nutrition research uh, and you take money from a food company with a particular interest in and the outcome of that research, um, you're in a very difficult position because if your study comes out with results that favor the sponsor's interest, which almost all industry funding does, you know, then you look like you've been bought or you have the appearance of having been bought. Um, and if your study comes out against the sponsor's interest, you'll never get money from that sponsor again. Hmm. Right. That's a, that's a conflict of interest. Okay. So what are some examples of studies that have come out in favor of the food industry? Well, the obvious ones are the ones that were funded by Coca-Cola. And much has been written about that. Uh, Coca-Cola spent several years investing in a group called the Global Energy Balance Network through a group of researchers who were arguing that physical activity is more important than what you eat. 
uh, in, uh, in, in terms of weight. And they, um, when they started, when this group started out, they neglected to mention that they were funded by Coca-Cola, but that was discovered. And their research generally found that physical activity is more important than diet and what you eat. Um, the Mars Company, for many, many years, funded research to demonstrate that chocolate is a health food. People still believe that. Mm. You know, that if you eat dark chocolate, you're doing wonderful things for your health. Um, now, these days, it's healthy foods, uh, the trade associations for healthy foods that are funding research to demonstrate that blueberries or pomegranates or pecans are superfoods. Um, so that people will think that if they eat these, they're going to be miraculously healthy. I'm greatly in favor of eating fruits, vegetables, and nuts, but I wish they wouldn't do that kind of research. Right. So it's weird to me, the unconscious part, though. So the researchers, even though so much has been written about it, how, how are they still not aware? Because this occurs at, a, at an unconscious level, and this has been demonstrated. Um, there's really an enormous research base for, for what industry funding does, but most of that research has been based on the tobacco, chemical, and pharmaceutical drug industries. Mm. Uh, interest in nutrition research is much more recent. And there's 50 years of publications, of thousands of publications on drug industry funding of physicians. And that research shows that all you have to do is give a physician a pen and a pad of paper with a brand name drug logo on it. And the, that physician will prescribe that brand name drug over a generic or over whatever the physician was doing before. And if you ask the physician, have you changed your prescription practices? The physician won't realize that that yeah. happened. It occurs at some kind of unconscious level. People don't recognize the influence. They didn't intend to be influenced. They certainly don't feel that they've been bought okay. out. Um, and this, this makes the whole situation extremely difficult because researchers who take industry funding deny that it has any effect on the design, conduct, or interpretation of their research. And that, too, has been studied. Researchers have looked at where does the bias come in, and the bias mostly comes in in the way the research question is framed. And I can give you a really good example of that. Um, I get letters all the time from uh, trade associations for one or another food product saying, we are looking for research studies. We have $50,000. Uh, we want to fund research studies that demonstrate the benefits of our product. So the investigators are going to design studies that are going to show benefit. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they're not going to get funded. Right. I mean, why would the, um, the trade association fund research that wasn't going to show benefit? Yeah. So, so that's, the, that's the framing of the research question. Um, design me a study that's going to show the benefits of blueberries or whatever. Um, and then that's very different from saying, are blueberries better than any other fruit for doing one thing or another? What is the effect of adding blueberries to um, unhealthy diets? Or I can think of a lot of research questions that are much more open-ended and that aren't going to be organized to produce the, a specific result. What percentage of nutrition research out there is based on those open-ended, unbiased questions? Well, most of it is, it turns out. Mm. Um, I only know one study that has looked at how much of nutrition research is industry funded. And that study found that it was less than 15%, um, which surprised me. I thought it was more, but it really isn't. And that researcher had gone through five years of nutrition studies in 15 different nutrition journals hmm. to come out with that percentage. Now, that was some years ago, and maybe the percentage has increased. But most nutrition research is still funded independently. Do the, is the research that's funded by the food industry, does that get kind of spread more too? Is it more, you know, the big headlines 
Do they also pay for that? Oh, absolutely. Um, they send out press releases. So, right. so you see a study. I think I, I tend to post these on my blog site, uh, foodpolitics.com on Mondays, whenever I find one that's just particularly egregious. Um, and, you know, there will be one that says that uh, people who don't eat meat, I think the most recent one, people who don't eat meat um, have poorer mental health than people who do eat meat. And it was funded by the National Cattlemen's Beef Board or one of those, um, or one of those meat associations. I can't remember which one. Um, and, you know, I saw the result of it and thought, I wonder who paid for this. Bingo. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I can usually recognize whether they're industry funded by the titles, because why else would somebody do a study like that? Right. Doesn't make, yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Well, yeah, and so as you say, the majority of research is still independently funded, but then if you have a small percentage that's industry funded, and then that's what we're reading most about, it doesn't really even matter, I guess, that it's still a small percentage, because those are the headlines we're seeing, so well, that's what we're believing. We see those headlines because they're fun. Mm -hmm. It's really fun to think that mangoes, which I love... Um, are better than fiber supplements for constipation. That's one of my favorites. Uh, you know, I saw the headline, you know, the title of the study. I wonder who paid for this? The National Mango Board. Or mm. people who eat pecans have lower risk of heart disease. So the Pecan Association funded that one. Um, I, I mean, it's pretty predictable. And is there an easy, oh, go, sorry. I was just going to say, it's pretty rare for those studies to come out with results that don't show benefits. Mm -hmm. Is it pretty easy for the average consumer like myself to read a headline and then trace where the funding for that research came from? No, it's impossible unless the reporter mentions it mm. um, and makes a point of it. And um, I think reporters are getting better about mentioning who the funder is, especially in situations uh, that look like that. Uh, but a lot don't. Journals require investigators to make two kinds of disclosures, and those are printed at the bottom of their papers. They have to say who paid for the research, but they also have to say whether they have any conflicts of interest, meaning are they paid by industries that might have some vested interest in the outcome of that particular mm. study. And I have seen many, many, many uh, examples of, in, of industry pay, of industry funded research where the investigator says, you know, the beef board paid for this research, but the investigators have no conflicts of interest. As <laughs> if taking money from the beef board doesn't represent a possible source of influence, but at least they're declaring the funding. Yeah. I do know when I'm reading these headlines, sometimes they'll have a link to the journal article where it was published. So do you recommend people, when there is a link present, click through that? And then it's usually at the bottom of the research, right? The yeah. conflicts of interest yeah. are noted. Just before you get to the references. Well, it, yeah, I mean, and I always recommend that people read original research, even if they can't understand all of it. Um, mm -hmm. You can read the abstract, which is usually written in words that people can understand. Um, you know, you can kind of look through. There's quite a lot of information that people can get out of looking at uh, original research, even if they don't know statistics and even if they don't really know how to read research papers. You get something out of it. And at least you know what kinds of questions to ask. Uh, but most people don't have access to those papers unless the papers are freely available. And many, many journals have have the entire paper behind a paywall um, so that all you get is the abstract if you go online. And the mm -hmm. abstract doesn't say who the funder is. And that's interesting, too, because several years ago, um, PubMed, which is the government group that kind of take that kind of classifies and publishes um, and puts up abstracts of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of papers. 
um, agreed to list the funder uh, with the abstract, meaning that everybody would immediately know who the funder was, but they've actually never done it. Oh, really? No, I mean, what they said was that if the journals provided that information, they would do it. Uh, but I guess the journals don't provide that information and they never pushed on it. How, you know, so frustrating. Yeah, because I, I look at... Yeah, they're certainly not doing it. Right. I I personally find it fascinating and I read a lot of nutrition research, the actual journal articles. Uh, but yeah, I that point you made, often only the abstract is available and come to think of it, I don't think I've ever seen a conflict of interest listed under the abstract. No. So. No. Yeah, that's pretty infuriating if you're if you're trying to get to the root of the source. Yeah, it makes it much harder. I mean, for somebody like me, I have access to these things through my university's library. Um, and if there's one that I think this this one has to be industry funded, it just has to be. Nobody else would do a study like that. Then I'll go to the trouble of going onto the university's website and looking it up through that. Um, mm. and you know, and I'm, I'm not always right, but sometimes, yeah. Yeah. So what do you advise for just people like me and the average consumer to do when they read this headline and it totally throws them for a loop and everything they've been eating is wrong? Well, there what you, can they do? you just answered your own question. Oh. <laughs> you know, uh, use common sense. Yeah. If the result throws you for a loop, there's probably something wrong with it because that's yeah. not how science works. Science works incrementally. I mean, I can't think of very many breakthroughs in nutrition science that were truly chained, paradigm shifting. I mean, I'd be hard pressed to think of one. Um, that's just not how it works. And anytime you see the phrase, everything you knew about nutrition is wrong, boy, is that, that's a red flag in the air. Um, and it's time to get out your most skeptical spectacles. Uh, you know, you really want to be skeptical anytime you hear something like that, because that's not how science works. So use common sense. Yeah. I mean, we know what a healthy diet is. Fruits, vegetables, grains, plant foods not overeating, not eating too much junk food. That's a healthy diet. Uh -huh. Anything that tells you something different, you want to raise your eyebrows and say, wait a minute, what's going on here? Has it gotten worse throughout the years or is it just that we have more access to social media and you know, TV and things and it's more publicized now, these kind well, of skewed I, findings? Yeah, I think every era believes that the interest in nutrition is at its peak. Certainly when I started out being interested in this field in the 1970s, I just thought it was exploding everywhere and it's never stopped. Um, I think what's changed is public interest. There's a lot more public interest in these kinds of issues now. And of course, social media has changed everybody's games because mm. anybody with any crazy idea can go on social media and have a billion followers and um, be enormously influential, even without knowing anything. I mean, it mm -hmm. used to be that the people who had really crazy ideas about nutrition would write would write books. Oh, uh oh, the phone just rang, and I'm going to have to turn it off. Sorry about okay. that. I, no worries. Um, undoubtedly, spam. Okay. So you were saying we? how everybody thinks the decade they're in is when nutrition research is at its peak. Right. I mean, okay. Um, so uh, what's really changed is social media, uh, because it's now possible for somebody on social media to have some really wacky idea about nutrition that's totally false and probably not particularly healthy, um, but they, because they're fun and attractive and know how to use social media, uh, they'll have lots and lots of followers, and, and they'll have vast numbers of followers. I mean, it used to be that somebody liked Atkins would write the Atkins diet, the book would come out, m maybe a million people would buy it. Um, and, but now you don't even have to write a book, right? You, you could just, you could just be on TikTok or, you know, 
or Facebook or anything, and you'll have loads and loads of followers who believe what you say, even though it may not have much in the way of a scientific basis. And I don't know what to do about that. I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating about food and nutrition is that people have such passionate, emotional feelings about it. Food is something you put in your body. It's extremely intimate. Mm -hmm. You know, you're internalizing it. And you have your own experience with food. You know what makes you feel good. You know what makes you happy. You know what you like to eat. And the, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter what the science says in that sense, because you have your own experience to go by. Yeah. Um, and, and then because there are so many commercial interests in nutrition, food companies trying to sell you their particular product, then things get very confusing and the government doesn't help. Uh, by because the government issues dietary guidelines that are that are really confusing mm -hmm. and that seem to change in very important ways every five years when in fact they say the same thing every five years except they change the wording so it's confusing mm -hmm. do you think there should be governmental guidelines for what to eat I certainly do but I think they should be completely independent and should follow the latest mm -hmm. research and if they were independent and followed the latest research, they would talk about how important it is to eat a diet that promotes health and protects the planet at the same time, that avoids what are now called ultra-processed foods, a, a new concept in nutrition. That's a very important one, I think. And they should uh, talk about how important it is not to eat ultra-processed junk, junk foods because there's now research that shows that people who eat them unconsciously eat more calories. And if you're worried about your weight, you don't want to be overeating calories. Right. I know for myself, when I was trying to lose weight throughout my 20s and I just was unsuccessful at it, I was following what I thought I should do, which was just exercising a ton, eating low-fat, counting calories... And I was just really believing any of the buzzwords on the front of packaging and never turning the package over to see how many ingredients are in something or how much it's processed. So in my mind, you know, a hundred calorie pack of Oreos was great because I could easily count the calories. And on the front, it said low fat, low calorie. So I just kind of believe that to be true. And a lot of my nutrition clients are kind of in the same boat. So I don't know. I'm a huge proponent of avoiding the ultra processed foods, actually turning packaging over and investigating yourself what is being used to make whatever it is and opting for the very minimally processed um, foods whenever possible. Yeah, and it's pretty easy to tell the difference. I mean, what I think the power of the the concept of ultra-processed is, is that it has a specific definition. It's food that's industrially produced, uh, can't be made in home kitchens because it's got ingredients that you can't buy at a grocery store. Um, it usually has a lot of ingredients and a lot of added uh, sugars and fats and salts. Uh, and the um, and they're highly profitable products in packages. And when dietary advice is really so simple, uh, you know, that I'm fond of quoting Michael Pollan's, uh, eat food, not too much, mostly mm -hmm. plants. And that's really all there is yeah. to it. And then within that, within eat food, that means real food, not ultra processed. Within that, um, you get to eat anything mm -hmm. you want, as long as mm -hmm. it's real. Uh, and you know that what the problem is that for many people, they don't know how to cook. That's a problem. I want to, I want everybody to learn how to cook because it's fun, yeah. and you get to eat you get to eat the proceeds, um, and then a lot of people can't afford diets mm -hmm. like that because in our particular political system, the relative cost of fruits and vegetables is much much higher than the relative cost of uh, junk foods, ultra processed foods. The price of them has gone down. The, or the, the price of ultra-processed foods has risen over the last 30 years, much, much less than the price of fruits and vegetables. 
So that has to do with our food policy and our food, our food system policy, which isn't focused on producing healthy food for people. Instead, its main fo- focus is to produce food for animals or fuel for cars. Mm-hmm. And that's where all the government subsidies come in. Right. So then if corn is subsidized, it's like how much corn can we use? How much how many products can we put it in? That type of thing. Well, most corn is uh, 40% of American corn goes for ethanol. Mm-hmm. Try to get your head about around that one. That's something that I just find unbelievable. Wow. Um, and then the, uh, you know, the, and only a small portion of the corn that's grown in the United States goes for food. Most of it goes for animal right. feed. Yeah. Have, I'm curious to know, because you were saying that people become really, you know, attached to any type of dietary pattern they follow, and they're really unwilling to break away from it ever. Have any of your views changed throughout your nutrition research, something you thought to be true in the 70s that now you believe the opposite or at least something different? Well, I really moved from talking about nutrients to talking about foods. I think that's the big Mm -hmm. shift. I started out, you know, because my background was in science, I started out my first course in in nutrition, focusing on nutrients. What does each of the nutrients do? Which ones do you need? Why do you need them? You know, sort of basic nutrition facts and figures um, with some food thrown in right from the beginning because I was kind of interested in it. I mean, I used... In, my, in the first class I ever taught, I used Francis Moore Lappe's Diet for a Small Planet, which is just coming out in its 50th edition. I can, 50th anniversary edition. I can hardly wow. believe it. Um, and, the, um, and I also used a series of articles about sugar subsidies. I mean, I was interested in this kind of thing right from the beginning. And it was interesting. A publisher asked me if I would put together a book of... Uh, previously published articles that would demonstrate the trajectory of my thinking about food and nutrition. And I did that, but it didn't have a trajectory. Mm. Um, I mean, I really was thinking about the same kinds of issues way back then as I am now. There have been some shifts, but they're really minor. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think nutrition advice has changed. Yeah. I think I think it says exactly the same thing. You should eat a diet that's largely, but not necessarily exclusively plant-based, not gain weight if you can avoid okay. it, um, and don't eat too much junk yeah. food. I mean, really. Well, and I think when you're eating more of the whole foods, you feel fuller. So then you're not as snacky or you know grazing all day because you actually are eating things that nourish your body. Um, So that was the biggest switch for me is when I switched to eating predominantly whole foods, just realizing how I didn't need to buy all of the packaged snacks anymore because I just wasn't hungry. Well, you lose the taste for them. I mean, what's interesting about the packaged snack foods, and this has been shown in really important research that was done at NIH last year, is that if you eat these things, you eat more calories and you don't even realize it. Um, and I think that's a very important finding. You know, it's the whole business with potato chips. You can't eat Mm -hmm. just one. That's the whole purpose of those foods is to get you to eat them. Um, and the food industry is really terrific at designing and formulating foods that we just love to eat. I like junk food. Everybody likes junk food. But uh, buy it in very small amounts because otherwise you're going to eat more of it and not even realize Yeah, and now there's all these healthier skews coming out of, you know, healthier chips, healthier, all the, you know, kind of existing junk foods. I think there's something, I haven't tried it, but smart sweets or something of healthier sweets. But really, I mean, it's still, it's still not the, you know, grains or fruit or vegetables or well, I like to ask, is this slightly better for you, junk food, a good choice? Right. And your answer would be? You know, a, it may be a slightly better choice, but it's not. It, right. It's still choice. a junk food. And it's still going to yeah. be hard to eat just one chip. No. 
Yeah, it's still ultra processed, yeah. and the um, and that's why I think the concept of ultra processed is so useful, and it's relatively mm-hmm. new. It was invented by a Brazilian public health professor about five years oh. ago, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, and by the and the power of it is that because it defines a special category of foods and distinguishes ultra processed from processed foods or minimally processed. Most foods are processed in one way or another, but these are in a special category of industrially produced ingredients you don't have in your kitchen, et cetera. Um, Once you have that definition, you can do research Mm -hmm. and the research is just pouring Mm -hmm. out that ultra processed foods are linked to Obesity, not surprising because you eat more calories. And because of that, you have a higher risk of type 2 diabetes, of heart disease, of whatever. So it's not that you can't ever eat potato chips or can't ever eat fast food or can't ever eat those things. It just means that they can't be all day long, every day. And that, I was just going to say, that's moderation, which is a, a very difficult concept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, every my idea of moderation is um, less than what I'm eating now, and so it depends on what I'm eating now, mm-hmm. uh, and it's very hard to define. But the um, you know, I, I mean, if you have a really healthy relationship with food, you can eat whatever you want and not worry about it. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on some of the buzzwords that are on a lot of packaging, and I'm sure they've come from industry-funded research at some point, or maybe not. But for example, the term gluten-free, how do you feel about that whole fad? Well, it depends. For some people, it's not a fad. Right, right. For, for some people, it's life-saving. Yeah. And, and I think the gluten-free phenomenon has been life-changing for people with celiac disease. Because before gluten-free, they were at risk any time they ate something they didn't make themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if it had wheat in it and had gluten in it, they were going to set off this chain reaction that was going to make them really sick. So I'm greatly in favor of gluten-free products. And a lot of people think that they're gluten-sensitive without having celiac disease. Um, and they feel better mm-hmm. not eating gluten. And I think that's fine. I'm, you know, wheat is not an essential nutrient. Uh, you can have a healthy diet, perfectly healthy diet without eating wheat. Um, for me, I would feel very deprived if I didn't get to eat bread yeah. because of bread, bread, pasta, pizza, because I love all of them. Yeah. In moderation, of course, and the um, and you know a lot of people think they're gluten intolerant, and maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But if they feel better not eating gluten, I don't see anything wrong with that. Does it bother you when big food will kind of take that though and put it on the front of a package to promote an ultra processed food as a health item? Right. Well, now we're back to ultra processed right, again. Right. And- and that's so a gluten-free ultra processed is a slightly better for you junk food. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, and so that raises the same question. Is something that's slightly better for you a good choice? No. Yeah. What about organic? Is that something we should all be prioritizing when possible? Well, I prioritize it uh-huh. um, because organic foods are produced with far fewer uh, dangerous chemical pesticides. Mm-hmm. Um, not that they're devoid of any, but they have a lot less. And uh, you know, even though the evidence that links pesticides to human health is questionable, and there's the pesticide industry has gone to a lot of trouble to cast doubt on any kind of research that links pesticides to poor health. I can't believe they're healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't think of any reason why people ought to eat pesticides. And I think they're worth of trying to avoid. And so I choose organics every time I can. Mm-hmm. How about not? I'm, yeah. I'm glad there are more. Yes. Available now. Definitely. How about non-GMO? 
Um, GMOs complicated. Mm -hmm. I'm not concerned particularly about the safety of GMOs. I'm very, very concerned about the about corporate control of the food supply and the ways that the GMO companies have used uh, GMOs, the GMO crops to do monoculture, to force farmers to use, to do one kind of industrial farming. And of course, the pesticides and herbicides that are used with them. Um, there are a lot of questions raised about them, particularly glyphosate, which is the herbicide used with genetically modified corn and soybeans. And glyphosate has now been linked to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And there are something, Monsanto, which was the company that makes glyphosate, uh, was bought by Bayer, and Bayer is now dealing with 30,000 to 40,000 lawsuits mm. uh, over non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, and the courts are ruling in favor of the plaintiffs, largely because the behavior of the companies in trying to hide the potentially harmful effects of glyphosate have been so outrageous. Wow. Um, so that buyer has just settled for $12 billion. We'll see what happens. Mm. But it's a big deal. Real quick, I want to take a break from the episode to share one of my favorite resources with you. One of the BS messages floating around out there is that eating healthy costs too much. Honestly, I used to believe this myself. That is, until I discovered ThriveMarket.com. Thrive Market is an online grocery platform that's essentially Costco meets Trader Joe's meets Whole Foods. I love that I can shop on their mobile app and have all of my favorite groceries, everything from natural wine to 100% grass-fed beef to nutritious crackers, everything, delivered right to my door. Last year, I saved over $1,000 shopping on Thrive. I honestly can't think of one reason not to love it. To save a percentage off your first order and see my full shopping list, click through the links in the show notes. Now, back to the episode. What about, I'm, I think I already know your answer to this probably, but I'm your take so on- predictable. The, <laughs> your take on the term superfood that everybody throws around. Well, it's a marketing term. Uh-huh. Um, you know, and its purpose is to make you think that that particular food is going to make you healthy. And if you eat that, you don't have to worry about anything else you eat. Obviously, that's not true. I'm greatly in, in favor of eating fruits and vegetables. And if it has to be a superfood to get you to eat it, okay. Right. But don't ignore everything else and just think Yeah, this is the everything one solution. Everything be a superfood. Mm, you know, yeah. You know, I mean, and, and any fruit or vegetable is because they all contain valuable nutrients and the secret of healthy diets always has been and still is to eat a variety of relatively unprocessed foods. Mm -hmm. And then when I was, you know, looking through all of your stuff, I, have you written 10 books now? Yeah, and edited a few too. Wow, that's incredible. But your new book called Let's Ask Marion. Uh, just came out this week, correct? That's right. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm wondering why you've written so many. So why this new book? What's different about this new book? Well, for one thing, this book is small. <laughs> I, think, I mean, it's this little tiny thing that you can put into your pocket um, with a really cute cover. And it's, um, it's, most of my books are 500 pages and have hundreds and hundreds of references. This one is a couple of hundred very small pages, uh, and it's done in a question and answer format with my friend Carrie Truman, um, who I got to ask questions, so and then I could respond to them. I mean, it was uh, the publisher asked for a small book. You know, your books are so long. Can't you <laughs> summarize them? And I couldn't figure out any way to do that. And uh, Carrie Truman had, about 10 years ago, wrote a blog in which every now and then she would ask me questions and I would answer them and her questions were fun to answer. And she posted them on her blog under Let's Ask Marion. So this title is hers. And, uh. and in a sense, you know, she created this, uh, the framework for this book. Um, and the, uh, and so, 
it's hard for me to write short essays, uh, but this was a really good way to do it. I do I, I, I post on my blog, foodpolitics.com, every day, but that's, blogs are different than books. The, mm-hmm. the writing style is different. The immediacy of it is different. And uh, I couldn't do blog posts. These were original essays, and they're formal in a sense. So these are formal answers to her questions. And her questions are mini essays. Um, wow. You know, they're a couple hundred words. They're mini essays. Um, and they were, and they're really interesting. I, I mean, I were, it was, they were interesting to deal with. And that's cool. Yeah. Cause I'm sure so many people are going to have more questions after listening to this. So then they can pick up that book and I'm sure their question is in there. It might be, uh, they're 18. Um, cool. and six of them are on personal diets and six of them are on community politics and six of them are on international politics having to mm. do with food. Wow. I love that. Speaking of, you know, what's going on in the world right now. You mentioned you're teaching this course on food and coronavirus. Yes. I forget the exact title, but can you touch a little bit on just some of the the reason you want to teach that or maybe just kind of the key, one of the key takeaways you, you have for your students right now? Well, if you take a look at Let's Ask Marion, this book, this book talks about food system politics and what it is about the way we eat and the way communities eat and the way international issues arise that have to do with with what are called food systems another buzzword food system is the term that's used to describe everything that happens to a food from the time it's produced transported stored sold um consumed and wasted it's everything that it's everything and you have to you, you can't really understand why we eat the way we do unless you understand all of that uh, right. where food comes from how it gets to us and the coronavirus i mean you just couldn't ask for an event that would explain how food systems work more clearly with the most obvious, and I think there are three examples, three things that happened that just took my breath away. The first was what happened in meatpacking plants. Because uh, workers in meatpacking plants who are among the most poorly paid workers in the country, they're um, largely immigrants, they're stacked together very, very close quarters, with knives and equipment that's very dangerous. Uh, They're right on top of each other. And the virus spread in meatpacking plants very quickly, but the meat companies didn't want to close the plants and didn't want to take measures that would separate the workers and ensure their safety. Instead, they went right to the president and got the president to uh, to invoke the Defense Production Act to force these workers to go to work and they get fired if they don't go to work, even if they're sick. So that was kind of breathtaking. And while that was going on, of course, because there was all this trouble in the meatpacking plants, all of a sudden meat producers had to kill hundreds of thousands of animals because they couldn't. there was no place to slaughter them. And so food was being wasted at a time when people were out of work and waiting in enormous lines to get hands out, hand, handouts of food on, at food banks. And then the other one was that everybody suddenly discovered that schools are not just places where kids learn. Schools are places where kids are fed. And if mm-hmm. schools are closed, kids aren't getting fed. I mean, these were just shocking things and I think made food system issues visible in a way that they'd never been visible before. Yeah. Well, I'm so envious of the freshmen who get to take your course. I'm sure that's going to be super interesting for them, how lucky they are to have you as their professor (laughs) amidst all of this. Really, I mean, how cool. Really, really. Well, I'm laughing because it's my first online course and the lectures Uh, were pre-recorded. I mean, I've done all that. And those students are all over the world. They're in Singapore and Hong Kong and they're in Abu Dhabi. They're in Africa. They're everywhere. Um, And I'm very curious to see how this is going to work. 
I'm sure it'll be great. I'm sure. <laughs> I understand though. Technology, I think everybody's just trying to figure it out right now. Exactly. So the final question I ask each of my guests is based on the title of the podcast. And it's, in your opinion, what does it mean to make the health investment? Oh, that one's easy. If you're not healthy, you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. So you have to invest in health. I'm interested in the nutrition, in the food and nutrition part of health. If you're not eating healthfully, you're not going to be able to function as a human being. Uh, and the most important, I mean, there are three enormous public health problems related to food, undernutrition, overnutrition, and climate change. And we need to be investing in a system that prevents undernutrition, prevents overnutrition, and prevents climate change. And if we're not doing that, we're not going to be healthy and the world's not going to be healthy. Mm, Yeah. Wow. Really, really powerful. Um, Where You already mentioned your website, foodpolitics.com. And we know Let's Ask Mary in your new book, I'm assuming, is on Amazon and other booksellers. Um, Bookseller of your choice. Awesome. And then where else can listeners follow and find you? Are you active on Twitter or Instagram? Yeah, Twitter Mar- at Marion Nessel. Uh, but the main place is the blog, foodpolitics.com, where I post most days during the week, Monday through Friday. Um, pretty much Mondays, I talk about conflict of interest issues or marketing, food marketing issues. Tuesday and Wednesday are news. Thursdays are usually collections of articles and Friday things to read over the weekend. Well, that's, I mean, that's a lot of work. So good for you for every single day showing up. I know I used to have a blog and then I've switched to the podcast, but that's, that's a lot daily posts. Yeah. It's keeps me, keeps me active. It's good thing. to Oh, (laughs) well, that's great. Well, I just want to thank you so, so much for being here today. I learned a ton and I know my listeners did as well. And I look forward to staying connected and reading Let's Ask Marian. And I'm just very, very grateful for your time. Oh, my pleasure. Well, that's all for today. Before the next episode drops, I'd love to chat with you one-on-one about the BS messages and methods currently holding you back. You deserve simple weight loss and sustainable wellness. So let's figure out how to make both happen. To book your free consultation, click through the link in the show notes. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Health Investment Podcast. See you next week. All content in this podcast was created for general informational purposes only by a non-physician. None of the content should serve as a substitute for professional medical advice, treatment, or diagnosis. Always consult a qualified health provider with any questions regarding a medical condition and before making changes to your diet, lifestyle, and or exercise programs. Do not disregard any professional medical advice you have received or postpone seeking such advice because of something you heard on this podcast.